Go ahead and turn to John 18. We're going to be looking at John 18, 12 through 27. That's on page 904 of the ESVP Bibles. So John 18, 12 through 27. So kind of the middle of chapter 18. And before we, we open up the word, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come to the Gospel of John this morning, and as we open John 18, uh, we're looking to be instructed by you graciously. We, we are asking for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, we want to, to see the meaning of this passage and also how to best apply it to our lives as we follow Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. NASCAR racing is based in Daytona Beach, Florida. It started in 1948. And when it started, it originally was all about taking stock production cars and pushing them to their limits. But the cars that race today are nothing like stock production cars. They have been heavily modified. With over 700 horsepower, they can go zero to 60 in three seconds. And they travel around these giant oval trackways at speeds in excess of 200 miles an hour. And we all know that with so many cars traveling that fast in such close proximity, all trying to get ahead, it is a race after all, that collisions can and do occur. Now, some of these collisions are minor. Sometimes one car just, the, the front bumper of one car just barely inches up and just kisses the, the rear bumper of the car in front of it, and that's all it is. Other times they're, they're more moderate. Sometimes they'll, they'll hit side by side and, and cause one car to, to spin out in the infield but usually with these minor and moderate crashes, the driver simply climbs out of the window and walks away, unharmed. But we also know that they're not always just minor and moderate collisions. Some collisions are serious. Some collisions are a lot worse. Sometimes vehicles become airborne and, and they start to spin and roll and kind of kind of bunny hop over the, the, the track and, and the infield until they finally come to rest, throwing parts and, and, and pieces of the car all over the place. Sometimes when collisions are that bad, the results are fatal. We understand that happens. Sometimes there's no coming back from a crash like that. In John 18, 12 through 27, Peter appears to reach a point where there's no coming back. He hits the wall hard at, at extremely high speeds and it's difficult to watch him sort of bunny hop from one denial to the other until he finally comes to a rest when the rooster crows. And as spectators sitting in the stands watching this, this crash happen, it, it's, it's difficult to believe that, that Peter could come back from that. I mean, conventional wisdom tells us if you deny Jesus three times in a row, you don't walk away. You don't come back from that. So in this passage, 
we're not only going to witness Peter's crash, we're also going to see Jesus appearing before the most powerful Jewish man in Jerusalem at that time, Annas. And as Jesus appears before this man, he answers the, the questioning of this man, but he answers this with, with boldness and with truth. And as we, we look at him, we're going to see Jesus refuses to be fearful or intimidated standing before this high, powerful person. Both Jesus' response to the high priest's questioning and Peter's catastrophic crash have something to teach us. In fact, there are some takeaways, there are some application takeaways that, that no Christian can afford to miss as we open up this passage this morning. So let's read it. This is 18, 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. What we have in front of us this morning is a passage that does not behave like a normal narrative passage. Instead of there being one passage, one narrative account with one big idea that we can go to and pull out and talk about. Instead, there are two events occurring simultaneously. Those two events are Jesus being questioned by the high priest and Peter and his denials. 
And you probably picked up on it when we read through it. It switches back and forth between these two events. It starts off Jesus, then goes Peter, then back to Jesus, then back to Peter. It's a, it's a very effective literary device because John, the author, shows us how these things are occurring at the same time. But the challenge for us this morning is going to be trying to keep both of these plates spinning because it's, it's going to seem like right when we get into following Jesus, then we have to switch gears and now we have to see what Peter's doing. And as soon as we start to get into Peter's situation, then we have to go back to Jesus. So be forewarned, we're going to be moving back and forth and those shifts are going to be very abrupt. We're going to be, be switching one off and then switching the other on. So let's start, and it starts with Jesus in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So this whole crew, or as Matthew tells us, this great crowd of Roman soldiers and temple police move in and bind Jesus, most likely with some iron uh, shackles, some iron handcuffs and chains. And so Jesus has now willingly allowed himself to be captured. He has willingly given himself over to be a prisoner of sinful men, and he is no longer free to, to walk around physically as, as he would like to. He is bound. And the first thing they do when they bind him, verse 13 says, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So we need to take a break for a minute and figure this out. Unless we have some historical background, we're going to get very confused with these high priest verses. Verse 13 tells us that Caiaphas was high priest that year. But then Jesus was appearing before um, Annas for questioning in this passage. And verse 19 says, the high priest then questioned Jesus, referring to Annas. And then after being questioned by the high priest, Annas, verse 24 says, Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. So which is it? Is Annas the high priest or is Caiaphas the high priest? And the answer is both. So here's how we're going to clear this up. Annas was a former high priest. Annas was high priest from uh, AD 6 to AD 15. And in AD 15, the Roman government deposed him. They, they, they took Annas out of office and they installed a new high priest. And it involves politics and everything else. But essentially, they didn't allow the Jews to govern their own high priest. They meddled. They interfered. And they would put someone in. Now, they would work in conjunction with, with the Jews. But they didn't let Jews have free reign over who their high priest was. Even though Annas had been removed from office in AD 15, he continued to exercise great influence over the Sanhedrin, over the Jewish nation, for a couple different reasons. Number one, under Mosaic law, the high priest's office was a lifetime appointment. So when the Romans removed Annas and installed someone else, many of the Jews appear to have been unwilling to accept or at least recognize the full authority and legitimacy of the next high priest. So in their mind, there, there was this kind of underground loyalty to the real high priest, 
anis, even though another one had been installed. Secondly, after Annas left office, five of his sons and his son-in-law all held the office. So dad had been the high priest. Now it was dad's sons being the high priest. Or in the, right when we join this narrative account, his son-in-law was the high priest. And so Annas was this patriarch. This was, he was kind of like this high priest emeritus, almost like a godfather type figure. This, this big family head with all his sons and all the rest of his family administering the high priest appointment as appointed by Rome in conjunction with them. So you can see why he was still the real power broker in Jerusalem. Annas was still calling the shots as far as high priest. And that's why they can continue to refer him. That's why John still calls him the high priest, as well as the currently Rome-appointed high priest, Caiaphas. He was the most influential and authoritative Jewish man in Jerusalem at that time. He held powerful sway over the Sanhedrin, that 70-member Jewish council that acted as the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, all, all wrapped up into one. He exercised, exercised massive authority over that uh, Sanhedrin, over the temple, and over all things Jewish. And so that's why they can both be referred to as the high priest. And this is why Jesus was delivered to him first. He was top dog. They took him to Annas first, even though he wasn't technically um, the current high priest. So Caiaphas, yes, he was the high priest, but for all practical purposes, he was still subordinate to Annas. Well, verse 14, John reminds us of Caiaphas's declaration back in John 11. I don't know if we can remember that far back, but if you remember back in John 11, Caiaphas had been the one to openly advocate for Jesus's death. He was the one to say, look, this is just the smartest move to make. It's the easiest move to make. Let's just kill Jesus. Let's just take him off the board. Let's not worry about how he's disrupting our status quo and a threat to our power. Let's just kill him. So John reminds us of that. And the reason he reminds us, it's his way of showing us that the Jewish leadership is getting exactly what they want. The Jewish leadership is getting exactly what they've wanted all along. Here Jesus is bound and captive and delivered to them on a silver platter. This is their dream come true. This is perfect. We've got him. And he's standing before us and he's bound. It's game over. Verse 15. Let's switch back to Peter. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. The other disciple is John. Uh, th there have been um, attempts to try to identify this as someone else, or attempts to say, well, we just don't know who this is. It's John. It's John. John uh, refers to himself with anonymity in his own gospel. Uh, John refers to himself using the phrase, other disciple, in John chapter 20, verse 2, John chapter 20, verse 3, John chapter 20, verse 4, John chapter 20, verse 8. So John is the other disciple that is unnamed here. Since that disciple, John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So we're not told how John knows the high priest. 
but we are told he knows him. And he knows him well enough to gain admittance into the high priest's home courtyard. This was part of his residence. He was being invited into his home. Verse 16 and 17, But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So John was known by the high priest. Peter was not known by the high priest. So John's inside, Peter's outside. Either Peter didn't feel comfortable walking into someone's house that he didn't know. We can relate to that. Or he wasn't granted admittance uh, when, when everybody else went in. They was kind of giving him the hand, saying, so, no, we don't know you, stay outside. Either way, John sees this and intervenes. So he goes and talks to the servant girl who is stationed at the door. We can imagine some kind of exchange, right? John walks up and says, oh, it's okay, let him in. Or, oh, no, he's with me, he can come in. Something like that to bring Peter inside. And as soon as he enters, or soon after, the servant girl questions Peter, and look what she says. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? You also, meaning you also, along with John, your friend, John I know, John is known to the household, he's a disciple of Jesus, are you a disciple of Jesus too, like John? That was the question. And this is where we see Peter's rear wheels beginning to break loose and his rear end starting to, to drift. This is a servant girl. This is not a Roman soldier coming up to Peter and drawing a sword and holding it to his neck and saying, renounce Jesus and pledge your allegiance to Caesar. This is not the high priest or a high-ranking Pharisee saying, we're going to put you out of the synagogue unless you tell us what we want to know or unless you renounce Jesus' name. No, this is a servant girl doorkeeper making conversation. Oh, hi, you're not one of his disciples too, like John, are you? Peter's response, I am not. And, and it's like he's going sideways at 175 now. There, there's some smoke coming from his tires at this point. How, how could Peter go from standing in the garden, standing on the mark of Christ, in loyalty, ready to die for Christ, to this denial of his association with Jesus when questioned by a servant girl door watcher who asked him a, a quick question on the way into the courtyard. What happened here? And Peter flat out lied. There was no avoidance or, or kind of evasive half answer. You know, he, he could have said, well, I mean, I know him. I, I've, I've traveled with him for a while. Or um, disciple? Well, you know, it kind of depends on how you define disciple, kind of. No, he just flat out lied. I am not. I am not. How far he had fallen from just a few minutes earlier in the garden. And to show us how far he had fallen, look at verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now last week we looked at Peter and John and Jesus and Judas and they were all in the garden and 
Judas stood with the enemies of Christ while Peter stood on the mark of Christ. Now look what happens. Where's Peter standing? He's standing with the enemies of Christ. And I don't think it's an accident that John, immediately after recording his denial, tells us where he's standing. He's no longer standing on the mark. He hit the wall. His front end crumpled. He lost steering control. The radiator burst. There's coolant all over the track. This, this crash isn't over, but it's not going to be pretty. Let's switch back to Jesus. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So this is Annas, the godfather high priest, not Caiaphas. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. So Jesus, Jesus is saying two things here. Number one, I have been preaching and teaching for three years and you don't know what my message is about? I, I have spoke openly in the temple where all Jews come together. In other words, with many witnesses. Some of the men standing there might have heard Jesus and his teaching. Annas might have heard Jesus and his teaching. Annas hung out in the temple. He's telling them, my teaching is an open public record. And the second thing is, if you're trying to make your case against me, you need witnesses. There are plenty of witnesses to my teaching. Go ask them to come forward and testify to the truth. Please, go get some witnesses. I would love for you to go get some witnesses so they can testify to what I said. Well, normally charges like blasphemy, false teaching, and that's what they're trying to nail him on, had to be proved by the testimony of witnesses. But his enemies aren't interested in witnesses. His enemies aren't interested in the truth. And this is a, a formal trial. Okay, this nighttime meeting with the not technical high priest, but the real power in Jerusalem. No, this is off the books. Are you familiar with those, those movie scenes where the good guy gets captured by some of the, the bad guy's henchmen and, the, and they, they either put his hands in front or in the back and they, they rough him up and they bring him to the, the nightclub or the restaurant and they walk him through to the back where the, the, the big crime boss is and maybe he's uh, having dinner or, or drinks with some friends and they, they shove him in front and he's standing there and now he has to appear before the crime boss and the, the crime boss questions the good guy and then he starts to monologue about how he owns the city and, and no, nothing happens without him giving the word and, and usually at that point the, the good guy says something sarcastic or insults the crime boss and what happens? The henchman hit him, or, or, they, or they put the butt of their rifle in his stomach and he doubles over and he says, is that, way you, is that the way you talk to him? Show some respect. Look at verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? I want us to see what's going on here and, and get the point. Annas 
is a corrupt boss. Annas is the head of a law-breaking family organization that is continually filling the high priest office and ruling the Sanhedrin. Annas does control the city. Annas does give the word in a hapus. Annas literally has henchmen standing around in his private residence making others feel intimidated as they appear before him. This is the godfather figure, crime boss, and his name is Annas. Part of what he's doing here, in addition to getting Jesus to try to incriminate himself, is displaying his power. He's, he's flexing his boss muscles in front of Jesus to get him to be fearful and to intimidate him. This is what's happening. But Jesus does none of those things. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? Jesus is saying, name, name my sin. What did I do? What did I do wrong? And of course, Jesus spoke the truth. They didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. So why did they hit him? They hit him because Jesus didn't show fear. They were hit him because Jesus wasn't afraid of earthly power and influence. And let's be clear on this. Annas stopped being a servant of God a long time ago, if he ever was one. So this isn't about showing proper respect to earthly authorities, although Jesus is still doing that. He's done nothing disrespectful. He's not cowering before them like they expect. He's not afraid. He's not trembling. He's not begging them for his life. And they don't like that, so they hit him. Well, Jesus was not afraid or intimidated by worldly power position, and neither should we. Let's fast forward to Acts chapter 5. Let's look at Peter and the apostles. It says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. This is a perfect example of disciples of Jesus walking in the footsteps of Jesus. In, in our passage, Jesus is being questioned by the high priest. Here's Peter and the apostles being questioned by the high priest. In, in our passage, Jesus isn't afraid. In, our passage, in, in Acts, Peter and the apostles aren't afraid. This is a model for us to follow. This is one of those essential applications that we can afford to mess. And that is not being fearful of worldly power and position. We have a biblical examples of followers of Christ standing before the civil authorities being issued a legal court order and they refuse to obey it. Because like Jesus, they weren't afraid of earthly power or office. They would not allow themselves to be intimidated into disobeying Jesus Christ and his word. So the application is pretty straightforward. Have we ever asked ourselves, have you ever asked yourself, what would I do if a law was passed or if there was a court ruling or if there was a directive issued by a duly elected official and that law or ruling, if obeyed, 
would force me to disobey Jesus Christ, what would I do? Would you be afraid to disobey it? Would you be intimidated into submitting to it? Or would you even question it? There are some profession Christians out there who would say something like this. They'd say, well, it's the law, so there's nothing I can do. Or, um, well, this is what the court ruled. I I don't have a choice here. Did Peter and the apostles have a choice? Here's the application. Number one, let's start by acknowledging that God does not want his disciples to blindly follow earthly, worldly powers. We follow Jesus Christ. That's where our allegiance lies, Jesus Christ. We're not a bunch of lemmings rushing off the edge of the cliff just because someone told us to. We follow Christ. Number two, The default state for us is obeying civil authority. That is our default state. God does expect Christians to obey the law and respect civil authority. And we are to pray for earthly rulers, like our elder did this morning. We pray for our earthly office holders. Number three, we don't get to choose which laws we want to obey and which laws we want to ignore. Believers must discern wisely, is this law ordering me to do something that the Bible prohibits, or is this law prohibiting me from doing something that the Bible commands? Um, God does not want us to follow any worldly law that would result in us disobeying Scripture. And finally, number four, because of the world we live in, we need to move, we need to be prepared to move beyond theory. In other words, we need to be able to go beyond knowing this. Okay, it's one thing to know right doctrine and say, okay, yes, uh, I understand biblical authority, civil disobedience, allegiance to Christ, and in this hypothetical scenario, this is what I know I must do. Okay, it's one thing to know that. It's another thing to put it into practice. And COVID was a wake-up call for the church. And it has forced the church, rightly, to think more carefully and more um, seriously and more um, precisely about this doctrine. So as believers in the world we live in in 2024, we need to be able to be prepared to to take this off the shelf and and put it into practice as needed. We need to be able to, to grab that tool out of the toolbox and be able to start wrenching on some things real time in our life. So Jesus was not afraid or intimidated by worldly power and position, and we must follow in his footsteps. And then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, I'm I'm done with you. No more more remarks from you. So he looked at his henchmen and does one of these. He goes, get him out of here. Take Take him to Caiaphas. Let's switch back to Peter. We left him right after his first denial when he hit the wall. Uh, Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And here he is with a second chance. 
he, he, he blew it the first time. He denied Christ. This is his chance to redeem himself. This is a chance to come back and, and stand on the mark of Christ and declare his allegiance. Yes, I am a disciple of Jesus. But he doesn't. Instead, we have his second denial. I am not. And just like that, he, he got airborne. Uh, the, car's, the car is tumbling end over end, leaving a trail of wreckage at this point. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So Peter's confronted for the third time. This time, we're given the detail that the man questioning him is a relative of Malchus. You remember him. He's the one Peter tried to chop his head off in the garden. And all of a sudden, this could get very personal. Um, maybe the light of the fire, uh, maybe there was a, a little bit of flicker uh, of you know, registering in his, in his mind. Remember, he would have had his eye on Malchus. He was related to him in the garden. Wait a second. I saw you there. I saw you there, right? Peter has to answer. He's, he's afraid. He's afraid this relative of Malchus might want to rough him up or worse. He's afraid that the coming claim will reveal himself as, as a disciple. And he's afraid of that. After all, what are they looking for? They're looking for Jesus and his disciples and conspirators and for anybody that might be a threat. And if he goes back now, then he's going to reveal himself as a liar the first two times, which is going to raise even more suspicion. Verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And with that, his car bursts into flames with multiple explosions and skids to a stop. Luke tells us that at that moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and they locked eyes. And in that moment, Peter remembered that his Lord had told him he would deny him three times. And then it says uh, in, uh, in the parallel accounts, he went out and wept bitterly. I don't know how you come back from that. How many times in Jesus's earthly ministry had he emphasized believe, believe, believe. And here is Peter, deny, deny, deny. And he had just seen Judas fall. Judas was one of the twelve, so he knew it was possible. Judas was one of the inner circle and, and he fell away. Now he's supposing, I guess this is my turn. I guess this is what it looks like when I fall away too. For Peter, it must have seemed like there was no coming back from that wreck. He had crashed and burned by denying his Lord three times. Well, Peter and his denial, Peter, Peter's wreck gives us our second essential application from this passage. Because maybe you're here this morning and maybe like Peter, you're a believer but you have sinned big time. Maybe you have really messed up. And this wasn't just, uh, you didn't just kiss the bumper of the car in front of you. This was, 
this was a wreck. When you review your life, this, this one takes the first place ribbon. And you're wondering, how do I come back from that? Or maybe it's not just one, one biggie. Maybe you're here this morning with cumulative sin. Maybe you have this ugly track record of committing the same sin over and over and over again. And this sin has piled up in the backyard of your life. And it's, it's so big. It's, it's, it's cleared the fence line. The neighbors can see it. This is just one big mess. And you don't feel like a Christian who still occasionally sins. You feel like a sinner who still pretends to be like a Christian. And you're wondering, can I come back? Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus come back from the grave? Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ? Then the answer is, you too can come back. Jesus is your way back from sin. Jesus was Peter's way back. We don't think Jesus could walk away from, or excuse me, we don't think Peter could walk away from this. He comes back unscathed, without a scratch, without a burn mark. He comes back. It doesn't matter how big your sin. It doesn't matter how much your sin. It doesn't matter if you've crashed and burned and your car is unrecognizable. You will exit the window and walk away unharmed because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is. Christ took the penalty. You get to walk away. You get to walk away. It's just that simple. In Christ, you are forgiven. And if you're here this morning, if you're in one of those categories, if you've blown it big time, or if you've got this cumulative record that you just can't get away from, hear this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, hear this word of the Lord. Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is a word for you if you are in Christ. How far is the east is from the west? If, if you go this way and you go that way, you're, you're never going to run into them. It's infinity. He removes your transgressions. Know this. If you are in Christ, you get to walk away. Christ takes the penalty for your sin. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to know the truth. And the truth is, outside of faith in Jesus Christ, there is no coming back. Just as good as that good news is for all those who are in Christ, they get to walk away. For those who are not in Christ, there is no coming back. You need to know that. There are no second chances. There, there are no do-overs. We get one life, and without placing our faith in Jesus Christ, there's no coming back. So repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. Turn to him. Turn to Jesus while there is still time. 
Turn to Jesus while the door remains wide open. And if you are not in Christ, by your own admission this morning, this word is for you. Hear this word, Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Please hear this. If you're an unbeliever and you turn to Jesus Christ, God promises to pardon your sin. He will receive you if you turn to him in faith. So brothers and sisters, do not be afraid or intimidated by earthly power or position. Your allegiance lies with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is your way back from sin. He always has been. He always will be. He will not change. If you trust in Christ, you get to come back from your sin. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for our Lord, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are merciful, gracious, and that in Christ we are forgiven. Father, we ask that we would remain bold for Jesus Christ, that our allegiance would never waver. And Father, would you allow us to proclaim this good news of forgiveness to our friends, our family, and those who we know don't know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.